This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. The scripture reading for today is taken from Mark chapter 1, 14 through 28. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother, Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us? Spirit cried out. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed. And they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. It is remarkable reading the Gospels, the life of Christ, and especially in this passage, how Christ is always in command of every situation he faces. He's never nervous, he's never unsure, he's never back on his heels like leaders so often are, he is the calm of every storm. And even when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, you sense that Jesus is the one in authority, not the Roman governor. The Roman governor is the one wringing his hands, trying to figure out what to do. Jesus is there. No one has taken his life away from him. He is laying it down of his own accord. And even when Christ is hanging seemingly helpless on the cross, it's not really the nails that are holding him, but his love for you and I and his total commitment to do the will of his Father. So here we are in Mark chapter 1. Jesus has emerged from the wilderness after doing battle with the devil for 40 days, and now he's about to commence his public ministry. He steps forth into the country of Galilee, this part of northern Israel where the boundary is between Israel and the Gentile nations. It's a really cosmopolitan place. Not only Jews there, but Romans and Syrians and Phoenicians. It's a place of trade and of commerce and all these different ethnic groups mixing and coming into contact with each other. It's a hint of what's to come in the ministry of Jesus and the disciples that he's about to call. And Jesus shows up and he's announcing the good news of the kingdom of God that God reigns, and that God's reign has come near in Christ himself. 
that's kind of, verses 14 and 15 are kind of a label over the entire gospel, what Jesus' ministry is going to be about. John the Baptist has been put in prison. Literally, it says, he was handed over, an ominous foreshadowing of what is about to happen to Christ himself in three short years. Jesus' ministry is not all bubbles and roses. It's a hard ministry. He's setting his face like flint to God's calling to go and die to save his people. But here Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry setting out. He's done battle with the devil. Now is the time for Jesus' mission to Israel and to the world to begin. And the first thing he does is to collect some men to surround himself with. Yes, Jesus has battled the devil alone. No one can join him for that. But now, as he's about to minister to the people, he brings around himself what are going to be 12 men, reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel. And as Jesus is about to call the disciples, you might get the mistaken impression from Mark's account that he's a stranger to them, that he's just strolling along the lake and randomly picks out four different guys, come with me, follow me, I'm going to change your life. But actually, if you were to compare Mark chapter 1 with John chapter 1, you'd realize that at least Andrew and Peter already knew Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist, in fact. And it was Andrew who would encounter Jesus and then race back to his brother Peter and said, Peter, I found the Messiah. Let me go and introduce you to him. And so already at that time, Peter and Andrew in some way already believed Jesus was the Messiah whatever shadowy idea they might have had. And already at this time, they counted themselves in some way disciples of Jesus. But now John the Baptist, the one they'd first been following, has been thrown into jail. And they're out fishing, wondering what's going to come next for them. And Christ appears walking along this lake, and he sees these men. And he calls them at a very awkward time. James and John are preparing their nets. They're in their boat. They're cleaning off the seaweed, fixing the, the broken and unraveled strands, getting ready for a hard day's work of fishing. Not a convenient time to call them. And look at Andrew and Peter. They're in the very act of casting their nets. One, two, three, come, follow me. Jesus intervenes in their life at a time that is not convenient and he's not waiting for what works best for them. Christ has a mission and he's going to call these men to fulfill it. And there's a lot of things we could, we could draw out of this account, but the thing I want you most to notice this morning is that disciples with authority. Jesus calls his disciples with authority. That's my first point. He calls them with authority. He says, come, follow me. Now, there were master-disciple relationships in ancient Israel. There were rabbis who would gather disciples around them and teach them the law of God. And you would literally follow your rabbi around and physically imitate him as he showed you, here's how you prepare your food, and here's how you walk down the street, here's how you relate to your family. All these things they would do following with their eyes fixed on their master imitating him, copying him, doing what he said so that they could be formed themselves into men 
who truly embodied the law of God. But Jesus does something radically different from these rabbis. These rabbis did not call disciples. If you were interested in becoming someone who was fully devoted to the law of God, you would go out and seek a rabbi for yourself. Much like applying to a medical school or trying to find a PhD supervisor, you would go around and try to find the guy that you really wanted your own life to be like. And once you'd found your guy, you would essentially apply, and I suppose he would interview you and see if you were a good fit, and that after several weeks or months, he would allow you the privilege of being his apprentice. Not the case with Jesus. Peter and Andrew and James and John are not the ones going to Jesus and saying, hey, can we follow you? Jesus is the one who comes to them. And he's not really coming with so much of an invitation as a command. He's not making an offer to them, saying, I've got, a, I've got an interesting proposition for you. I've got a deal to propose. We could perhaps set up an interesting discipleship program for you that might fit your needs and would be well-tailored to your interests. And I really think that if you would follow me, you would find this quite a rewarding and fulfilling experience. There is none of that at all in Jesus' call, is there? It's a command. It's an order. It's a call. It's a summons. Come, follow me. Christ calls his disciples with authority, not like the rabbis. He summons them with authority and power, and they find themselves obeying him and following him. What's more, Jesus is not inviting disciples around him as a mere interpreter of God's law or as a mere model of what it means to follow God. Really, as a disciple following a rabbi, you are not so much interested in the rabbi as the compelling interpretations he could offer you, the insight he could give you into God's word and how you might live that out in your own life. But Jesus is saying, come, follow me, follow me. Now, either Jesus is a man with a massive oversized ego or there is something very unusual about this person who's walking along the Sea of Galilee and summoning and ordering and commanding people to fall in line behind him. The call to discipleship is a call to follow Jesus. There's a lot of books on there on discipleship and a lot of material out there that we could study. But discipleship is all about Christ himself. The number one thing we need to know when we follow Jesus is Jesus himself. Not so much theories and ideas. We are following a person. And we all come from different backgrounds and different walks of life. And we have different goals. But the one thing we all have in common is a personal allegiance to Jesus himself. We are here to follow Jesus because he has purchased us with his own blood. It's one good reason for us to go through the Gospel of Mark, to take time looking at Jesus, looking at the life and the suffering and the death of this man. Because Jesus wants us to follow him. He wants our eyes to be fixed on him, men and women and children who deeply know Christ.
Jesus is the one who leads us in the way, and he's inviting us to follow him along his own path. So another name for disciples in the Bible is Christians, little Christ, men and women who are more and more in our lives and in our speech and in our thoughts and relationships becoming like Jesus. Now Christ has a very particular mission for these four men that he calls today. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Now, the NIV that we read said, says that Jesus will send them. That's not quite accurate. Jesus is really saying, I'm going to turn you into fishers of men. At this point, they are not ready to be sent. There's a time when they will be prepared, and Jesus will send them out into the world to preach the gospel. Not yet. There is a time to follow Jesus and to be turned into something, to be formed and shaped by Jesus, the master craftsman, who wants to make something of us. He's the potter, and we're the clay. In fact, the disciples here are called initially to something quite passive, to follow Christ and allow themselves to be made into something else. Not fishers of fish, but fishers of people. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to change us. He welcomes us as we are, of course, that's the good news of the gospel, but he does not leave us as we are. He wants to make you and I something different than we were when we first came to him, something of nobility and dignity and true purpose in God's kingdom, whatever that might be. The good news is that Jesus is the one who's going to change us into that person. I mean, we can get really stressed and anxious, can't we? Like, how am I going to fulfill God's, word, God's will for my life? And we think of God's will as something that he's hidden from us. Just like with our kids, they're looking for their birthday presents or their Christmas presents and looking up in the cupboards and under the beds. And we can think of God's will for our lives as something, for some reason, that he's keeping secret and hidden from us. And that it's our heavy burden to try to pry that out of God and figure out how we can be useful in God's kingdom. That is not at all how God works. God has a plan for us, and God is not stressed at making his plan come to pass in our lives. Wherever you find yourself right now, which might be in an odd and confusing place, it's not odd or confusing to Christ our master. He is in the process of turning you into something. And when you're halfway being turned into something, or a quarter of the way, or even three quarters of the way, it can be hard to perceive what Christ is doing. But rest assured, he has a purpose, and he will make it come to pass, because Christ has authority over us. Now, in the case of these four men, soon to be twelve, their special calling from Jesus, their summons, was to be fishers of people, to be fishers of people, to have the wonderful privilege of going out into the world and casting the net of the gospel, the invitation to Christ, as wide as possible and drawing men and women and children into God's kingdom. That was the great calling that Jesus had for them. Didn't seem like a likely thing at the moment. I mean, if I was Jesus, and thank God I'm not, but if I was him, I would not be looking for disciples, first of all, down at the seaside. 
I would not go down to the docks and wait for the next fishing boat to come in. Because fishermen, as a rule, are rather rough men, aren't they? I don't know if anyone's watched the show Deadliest Catch about those crab fishermen out in Alaska. Michelle and I watched that on our honeymoon in Maui years ago. And the, the nice warm breezes were coming in, and we were relaxing on the couch. And nothing accentuates the pleasure of, of doing nothing than watching people in toil and danger trying to catch crabs. And if you've watched that show, you know that these are they're pretty rough, pretty salty kind of guys. They were not the kind of guys that we would select for our um, pastoral search team, shall we say. We're looking for people who have seminary degrees and who are educated, and we have this spiritual idea of what people should be like. Jesus is not going to the rabbinical schools. He's not looking for the priests and the Levites. He's going down and choosing 12 ordinary men for an extraordinary mission. I mean, how encouraging is that? If you are a rough person, if you are a salty person, if you realize I'm ordinary, I am not blessed with tremendous gifts or great eloquence or power, Jesus can still use you, thank God, and he can turn you into something. If we're just a blob of clay, that is no obstacle at all to the great sculptor and artist. See, Jesus is the one who decides what the disciples' lives are going to be. He decides. They do not. He decides. And when he invites them to come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, there's a lot in their calling they don't realize yet. Essentially, by following Jesus, they're signing a blank contract. There's no negotiating. There's no back and forth. There's no, well, this is what I would prefer. Could we perhaps tailor this or adjust that? They are coming to to Christ as disciples, wholly, entirely following him, without hesitation or reserve. And when he calls, at once, immediately, they leave their nets, they drop what they're doing, and they follow Christ. Man, there's a lot you can criticize about the disciples in the Gospels. And they seem foolish and blundering, and they're trying to figure things out, but Before we criticize them too harshly, we should ask ourselves, am I following Jesus with the same kind of commitment and the same kind of trust that these disciples are? Or are we on our own mission, asking Jesus to bless what we want to do? And we, of course, we offer that to you, Jesus. But really, we've got our own thing going on. That is not the calling of disciples. We offer ourselves to Christ as men and women purchased by his blood to be used by him for his good purposes. See, the relationship between Jesus and his disciples is not a partnership of equals. We're not equals. We're disciples. We follow him. We obey him. Because Jesus calls disciples with authority. He is the Lord. So that's my first point. But moving on in the story, the first thing Jesus does is take these disciples on a little missions trip, doesn't he? Perhaps the next day even, he takes them to Capernaum. And Jesus promptly goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach, as his habit was. He goes in there and starts to teach. And as Jesus teaches, the crowds are, frankly, amazed. They're 
astounded. They're flabbergasted at the teaching of Jesus because he's teaching with authority. Real authority, not like the, the teachers of the law did. The scribes were there, and they would speak from the platform at the synagogue. But they were there as mere interpreters of the law. And they were very careful never to say anything on their own authority. Everything had to be carefully cited and footnoted and referred back to previous authorities. You know, if you write an academic paper, often your professors don't really, they don't really want original thought, do they? They just want to know that you have understood and can regurgitate what you've been learning in class and that you've read the assigned textbooks. And academic papers are rarely uh, a fun and exciting exploration of your own ideas. And that's kind of what these teachers of the law were like. It was kind of a dry experience, I imagine, going to the Sabbath and hearing some learned man with a long beard droning on about various interpretations of the law and what kind of dishes you could eat out of and how far you could walk on the Sabbath and what you're allowed to do um, in certain situations. Jesus does not teach like that. The most remarkable thing about him is the incredible authority with which he teaches. My second point, Jesus teaches with authority. He teaches with power, and there's something kingly and commanding about the way Jesus teaches. He's not referring back and citing and looking things up. He's teaching with the authority of God. Something so unusual and striking that people are bug-eyed and gripped by his preaching. Now, Mark doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus' sermon was on. If we go back to the, the first few verses we read today, verses 14 and 15, we know the essence of it was this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. The good rule of God has arrived. And if it seemed like this earth has been under the dominion of sin and sickness and death and darkness, but now Jesus has shown up and he's announcing the liberating reign of God. The revolution is underway. Everything is about to be turned upside down. And everything that's wrong about the world is going to be destroyed. And everything that's good about the world is going to be rescued and redeemed. It was the kind of message that the people were not used to hearing. Now, even though Mark doesn't give us an example of Jesus' sermon, if you were to look at Luke chapter 4, you can see what Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth around the same time, a few weeks earlier or later perhaps, this, this very season. And Jesus preached from Isaiah chapter 60. He opened the scroll and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted and to liberate the captives. And so Jesus reads this text from Isaiah, and then he rolls up the scroll, and he gives it to the attendant, and he sits down in the president's chair. And it says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. No teacher of the law ever spoke like that. No teacher of the law was ever able to say, today, in me, the great promises of God have been fulfilled. But this is what Jesus does, and he does with authority. 
And his authority is the kind of kingly authority that demands a response. Authority is not the kind of thing you can sit back and be neutral about. Oh, wow, that was a really, that was a really authoritative message. Jesus' authority is not like that. It demands a response. There are really two things you can do with authority, aren't they? You can obey or you can disobey. Jesus' authority must be reckoned with, and he forces us to choose sides. And the response that Christ calls for, that he commands, is this. Repent. Turn from those old, evil, idolatrous ways. Turn back from the kingdom of darkness and believe God's good news. God is announcing something great and awesome is present here, right now, in me. Trust the good news and trust in me. Embrace me and follow me. This is what Jesus' teaching with authority is about. See, our words are weak, aren't they? So often when I'm standing there and we're singing the last song, I'm looking at my notes and my heart sinks. I'm like, really, Bart, this is what you're going to bring today? People are hungry to hear for God, and you've just got these meager little scribbles. And what we have to remember is that Christ still speaks today by his powerful word. And he uses weak men and women, and he speaks through them to talk directly to our own hearts. Do you remember the story of Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples? And they're walking with this, what they think is a stranger from mile after mile, and he's explaining to them from the Bible from the Old Testament, why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die. And then as they're breaking bread, he reveals himself to them. They're astounded, and then he vanishes from their sight. Do you remember what the one disciple says to another? Did not our hearts burn within us along the way? Did our hearts not burn within us along the way? And man, we've all sat through some dry and dreary sermons in our lifetimes, haven't we? I think of all the hours that I've logged sitting under sermon after sermon after sermon. But there are times when by the Spirit of God, we hear Jesus himself, the living shepherd of his sheep, addressing our hearts. And it's a kind of address to us that comes with authority. A word of power that comes directly into our hearts. Jesus speaking to us saying, repent and believe for the first time or anew, and come and follow me as my disciple. I think it was the, the preacher Dick Lucas who described how after, after preaching, a non-Christian came up to him and asked, can you give me a watertight argument for Christianity? I want a watertight argument for Christianity. And Lucas said, I'm sorry, I have no watertight argument to give you, but I have a watertight person I can offer you. What we are interested most of all is not so much the teaching, but the teacher, the one who speaks with kingly authority. That's the one whom we must encounter if we are to know God. And we can talk and talk and talk until the cows come home, as we say, and nothing is going to happen to anybody unless Jesus puts his finger on their hearts and his powerful creative word makes them alive. And when Christ comes in power to our hearts, we must respond one way or the other. We either must receive him or reject him. And Jesus' word of power 
can bring about faith and repentance in our hearts. I think of when I first came to Jesus, oh, 20, 20 years ago, and I was, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was by the chain link fence by Clayton Park Elementary. I had been like smoking a pack of cigarettes and confessing my sins to God. And I was like, okay, now is the moment when I must surrender myself to Christ. And the thought occurred to me, perhaps I should, you know, get on my knees. That would, that would seem appropriate. And I felt this resistance in my heart, like, oh, that's a bit embarrassing. I, I don't want to go on my knees. And it was though I felt the hand of God himself on my shoulder pushing me down. Like, you will surrender to me, Bart. I am asserting my sovereignty and my authority over your life. And all of our stories are different. But all of us have experienced the hand of God on our shoulders, bringing us to a place of submission to his good lordship. And when we pray and when we preach to people who don't know Jesus, that's what we're praying for, not for our own words to be eloquent and persuasive so much as Christ himself speaking with power to people, which is why we pray and seek God to meet us as we preach the gospel. So here's Jesus, he's preaching the synagogue with power and with authority. And then suddenly, there is a clamor in the back. There is a big outburst. And there's a man who has an unclean spirit, an impure spirit, who interrupts the whole thing. See, Jesus' kingdom is claiming territory from another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And here's this representative of the kingdom of darkness, this impure spirit, which is Mark's typical term for a demon. Demons are fallen angels who hate God and they hate God's creation and they've come to steal and kill and destroy. Now, this might seem to you a little naive, a little old-fashioned. Like, who really believes in demons anymore? I think it was the German theologian Rudolf Bultmann who said in around 1950, it's impossible to have electric light and the radio and have medical and surgical technologies and still believe in the New Testament world of spirits and demons. But maybe it's a lot more naive to think that everything can be reduced to biology and chemistry and physics. There are mysterious forces in the world, both for good and for evil. It's not just about science and technology. There are strange things going on. We have to recognize that lost people are in the kingdom of darkness, and in some form or another, they're under bondage to the evil one. However ordinary and decently might appear, there is a dark shadow over their lives, that they belong to the kingdom of the evil one. And Christ has come in power to liberate and to rescue people. Now, this is a man who has an impure spirit in him. Our translation said he says he's possessed, which is not really a good translation. There's no such thing as demon possession in the New Testament. There's demonization, but not possession. In fact, the uh, text doesn't, Mark doesn't say that the man, that there was an impure spirit in the man. He says the man was in the impure spirit, as though this demonic force is trying to consume and swallow up this man. He's in the grip of this demonic power, and he needs liberation from Jesus. See, the mere words of a rabbi are not going to help much. 
a few historical citations and suggestions about how you might um, please God and obey his law are not enough to deliver you from the power of darkness. Christ himself has arrived in kingly power to rescue people, to demonstrate power and freedom. And this demon is deeply threatened by Christ's presence. And he demands, what do you want with us? What do you want with us? Now, if you read the the text carefully, it seems a little odd because it doesn't seem like Jesus is confronting demons. Does it? He's just preaching, and suddenly this demon starts screaming and shrieking in the back. Jesus has not entered the synagogue to assault demonic forces. In fact, there's nowhere in the New Testament where Jesus or the apostles or anyone else is out trying to bind territorial spirits or go out on the warpath against demons. It's always incidental to Jesus' real mission of preaching the good news of God. But the demon recognizes that Jesus' announcement of the good news of the gospel is a threat to his own territory. And he can feel his grip loosening on this man who's listening to the announcement of God's reign in Jesus. He's deeply, he's deeply threatened, and he bursts out, Have you come to destroy us, Jesus? He recognizes that Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus didn't come just to have some nice messages and a few cute little parables and to sit on green hillsides drinking tea with old ladies. Jesus came as a liberating king to rescue people who were enslaved to the forces of darkness. And then he screeches out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, why is it that the demon is saying this? See, no one else has really recognized who Jesus is. The demons do. But why are they trying to help out, seemingly, announce who Jesus is? Well, it seems like in the occult world of that time, and there were exorcists and sorcerers and so forth, the idea was that if you knew the name of a spirit, you could speak that name and kind of put a leash on them. You would have control over a spirit if you could name it. And it seems like in this desperate, panicked, last gasp attempt to fend Jesus off, the demon is trying to take control of Jesus by speaking his name. Is Jesus freaking out? Is Jesus nervous? Is he panicking? I mean, I don't know how I would react if a demon started manifesting in this congregation. Jesus doesn't break a sweat. He's not bothered in the least. What does he say? Basically, shut up and get out. Shut up and get out. He says, be quiet, literally be muzzled, and come out of this guy. See, with the exorcists of the ancient world, There were long, elaborate ceremonies as they would, for hours, go back and forth with this demon-possessed person. And there would be incense and incantations and chants and occult manuals they would flip through desperately trying to find something. There's one story of an exorcist who tried to get a demon out by taking like a really spicy root and shoving it up the guy's nose in the hopes that the demon couldn't stand the spiciness and would flee from the person. (laughs) Another scenario describes... um, a woman who was married seven times, and every night, wedding night, her husband died. Clearly, demonic activity, 
and they tried to expel the demon by burning the heart and liver of a fish. See, demon possession and demon exorcism were known in the ancient world, but there was no clear way. You had to try a lot of things to try to get this thing out of there. Jesus is doing none of this. The whole thing's over in 15, maybe 20 seconds. The sudden outburst, and then Jesus says, shut up and get out. And immediately this demon convulses the man and leaves with a shriek. Jesus has total control and total command over demons. It's not an hours-long battle. Jesus says the word of authority, and they have no choice but to leave. Jesus' power and authority are such that there can be no resistance on the part of the demon, but he must immediately leave this man that he's had a, had a grip on for years and years and years. And then, as you can imagine, there's dead silence in the synagogue, and everyone's eyes are sticking out like saucers. And then there's this buzz of conversation that breaks out, and people are asking themselves, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. What's remarkable is that what the people mention, first of all, even after this dramatic exorcism, is not the demon or him being cast out, but the teaching of Jesus. If I cast out a demon, you guys, I'm sure, would forget entirely about my message, and we'd be talking afterwards about this exciting, bizarre event that occurred. But for them, what sticks in their mind still, even after this exorcism, is the teaching authority of Jesus. And the demon exorcism only serves to enhance the authority of Jesus' teaching. Clearly, this new rabbi is no mere theorist. His teaching is so powerful that it does what it says. So Jesus teaches, and then here's the lab afterwards. You're like, whoa, this is not just a philosophy or a set of ideas or recommendations. This is a teaching that comes with power. And how comforting it is to us when we face darkness and opposition in our lives that all those things are under the complete authority of Jesus. On our own, we're just sitting ducks for the evil one. And if you don't belong to Jesus or if you're walking in some kind of hidden sin, you're opening yourself up to the forces of darkness. You're opening your heart up and practically welcoming them to move, into you, to move into you. But if we belong to Jesus, we need have no fear of Satan or any evil angel that might oppose us, that might desire our downfall. Christ has complete authority over all that. And should we encounter some kind of impure spirit or demonic force, there's no point us in engaging in conversation with this evil angel. We simply claim the authority of Christ. We have no power of our own. Are you crazy? Are you going to tackle a demon on your own? But Jesus is not intimidated by demons. He's not intimidated by the devil. He's not intimidated by the forces of darkness. So now think about it. As we put these three things together, the authority of Jesus to call disciples, the authority of Jesus to teach, and the authority of Jesus 
to cast out demons. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples. See, our mission that God calls us to is not something that we pick up in our own strength and our own ingenuity. It's resting on the fact that Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of God. He's been named the Son of God with power. We're weak and we're feeble. Look at this little group of us. Who are we to go and assault the gates of hell? What more foolish thing could be imagined? But the fact is, we belong to Christ. He has called us to be his disciples. We've repented and put our faith in him, and we belong to him. And therefore, in the name of Jesus, we can go and preach the gospel with authority. And in the name of Jesus, we can go up against the forces of darkness that might oppose us. And in the name of Jesus, we can invite other men and women and children to follow us as we follow Jesus. We worship a Jesus who's not weak, who's not ineffectual, who's not a mere theorist. We worship a Jesus who sits on the throne and is clothed with all the authority of God. So let's bow our heads and pray in the name of Jesus and ask God to make these things real to us. Our great God, we come before you and we bow our heads in prayer. We bow our heads in submission to you and submission to the Son whom you have sent and you have anointed. And we thank you for the authority of Jesus and we thank you it's an authority that is always exercised in love. There are so many in this world who have authority, but uh, they use it to oppress and to exploit and to harm. And we thank you that our shepherd is a good shepherd and he watches out for his sheep. We thank you, Lord, that we do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be confused. We do not need to be weak and uncertain because we follow and we serve and we trust in a Christ who is clothed with, clothed with power and authority. In his name we pray, confident in you. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.